Hey, my name's Ruben, the lead pastor here at Crossroads Church. Welcome to our podcast, where you can catch up on all the messages that you might have missed, or you might want to hear again. We hope you enjoy this message. We hope it challenges you. We hope it encourages you. And we hope ultimately that it would draw you closer to Jesus. Enjoy. Tina koutou katoa. Tina koutou kua tai mai ki te tautoko i te kaupapa o te rā. E mihi ana ki ngā tūtohu whenua o tēnei rohe. E mihi ana ki te mana whenua ara ko rangitāne tēnā koutou. Kei te whakaro au ki a rātou kua whetu rangihia. Ko wai au, ko ingarangi te whakapaparangi mai. Kauri oku totu Māori, ingari ko Aotearoa te whenua i whakatipu mai ia au. Ko papaioia te kainga. Ko Wunok toku whānau, he tumuaki tuarua, a hau i te kura tuatahi o te papaioia. Ko Ellie toko ingwa, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. Um, kia ora. Uh, it's really lovely to be here tonight. Um, and as I said in my pipiha, my roots are in England where my parents were born, but I was so privileged to be born and grow up here in New Zealand. I want to show you a photo of my family, um, and don't laugh too hard when you see um, the dress that I'm wearing, um, but that's me when I was, I don't know, eight, nine. Um, that was my favourite dress. Mum made it for me. Um, so this is us. Uh, my parents, Robert and Janet, they were born in the UK uh, and immigrated to New Zealand in the 70s. Uh, Andrew, my oldest brother, was born in the UK, but Simon and I were born here in New Zealand. Um, and even though we missed out on um, time with our extended family in the UK, I've always felt blessed that mum and dad chose to move to New Zealand and to stay here. Um, I've grown up in a country that has given our family so many opportunities. We've travelled lots. I've been in an education system that was really set up for my success. Uh, and we've met so many amazing people. We were a white middle-class family. My dad was a mechanic by trade and mum was a nurse. We had all that we needed and more. Um, we were really privileged to be able to go on family holidays every summer and have trips up the mountain to go skiing in winter. We grew up in this church and we had so many people who included us in their wider family celebrations when we couldn't be part of our own. Why am I telling you all of this? because I want you to know a little bit about who I am. I want you to know a bit about my background and the basis that I'm speaking from today. Um, after I finished school here in Palmerston North, I moved down to Dunedin and completed a Bachelor of Science, and then moved on to complete a Bachelor of Teaching in Primary Education. Uh, I began my teaching career up in Auckland, and I taught up there for five years before moving back to Palmerston North. And since I've been back, I've had the privilege of working with some pretty amazing educators and teaching some pretty awesome kids. Um, and those educators and those kids have really um, shaped my journey in education. Um, and I'm currently not the principal, but the deputy principal um, at Te Kuratuatahi o Te Papaioia. I don't know what my boss would have to say about that. Um, which is Central Normal School, so it's just a few streets over that way. Um, this summer, I've had the privilege of having some relatives visit from the UK, and in fact, my auntie and uncle were here tonight, uh, and it's really made me think about what it is that makes our country special and our country unique. 
Um, it, that's led me to think about the public holidays that we have here in New Zealand um, and why we have them. Some of our public holidays are celebrated across the world and some are unique to us here in New Zealand. So I've got some images that I want us to have a look at um, and I want us to think about what each of those public holidays represent and why we celebrate them. So here's the first one, um, Christmas, um, one of my favourite times of the year where we as Christians get to celebrate the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this is a new one that we began to... That, it's a public holiday that we celebrated last year, um, but not a new celebration, but a new public holiday, um, Matariki, the Māori New Year. Um, this next one I always think is really weird, Labor Day, um, where we celebrate the 40-hour working week with a day off. Um, but I'm always super happy to have a day off come October. Uh, the next one will be a new one for us this year where we get to celebrate this man, the king. Um, the king's birthday just has a weird sound to it, doesn't it, after we've always known it as the queen's birthday. Um, so all of these public holidays so far are celebrations, but not this one. Um, this one, Anzac Day, is more a day of remembrance, a day where we remembered um, New Zealand and Australian soldiers who landed in Gallipoli in 1915. Um, and we don't just remember... Uh, Gallipoli on this day, but we remember all those who lost their lives in service to our country over the years. Then we've got Easter, back to a Christian um, celebration. And this is a day that's kind of twofold. Firstly, um, we remember the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we also celebrate the fact that he has risen again. So, our public holidays, we have days of um, celebration and days of remembrance. But what about tomorrow? What about Waitangi Day? The day that Te Tiriti, the Treaty of Waitangi, was signed. What even is this day? Is it a day of celebration? Is it a day of remembrance? Or is it a day of mourning? For as long as I can remember, Waitangi Day has been filled with protests, unrest and hurt. You really don't hear people say, Happy Waitangi Day. Um, instead, it's a day where our members of parliament travel up to Waitangi to be reminded of their treaty obligations, and often we see confrontation occurring. Um, for me, the Treaty of Waitangi, Te Tiriti, and actually all things Māori, are really hard to talk about in a public setting but I think it's essential that we do. For me, as a Pākehā, I don't want to offend anybody in this space. Um, I don't want to bring up any past or present hurts. However, the more that I've learned in this space and the more that I have contemplated these things, I believe that if we don't talk about tetiriti and the after effects of it, we're going to continue to perpetuate the story. It really is essential for us to talk about these things. I, and perhaps we, need to acknowledge the part that we've had to play in Aotearoa's history, both good and bad, so that we can make a difference in the future. As I read in a Stuff article yesterday, we need to acknowledge the generational trauma that continues to affect Māori, and the direct relationship between that trauma and the treaty. So tonight we're going to go on a little bit of a history tour, um, and, but I promise that we will get um, to God 
a little bit later on, but stick with me just as we go through a little bit of our history. So I want to take us back to a time pre-1840. And pre-1840 in New Zealand is a time when there were over 100,000 Māori in Aotearoa. But there were an increasing number of Europeans coming um, to our shores. In fact, by 1830, and in those years leading up to when we signed the treaty, there were over 1,000 ships visiting our shores each year. Um, this brought an increasing issue with lawlessness, and also um, a lot of Māori were pressured into bad land deals during this time. There was also this huge concern that the French were going to annex this country or force their sovereignty onto it. Um, so these issues prompted 13 Māori chiefs from north, up north uh, to petition King William IV for protection. Um, and this led to He Whakaputanga, which was the Declaration of Independence coming into force in 1835. Between 1835 and 1840, when Te Tiriti was signed, the colonial office back in England gave William Hobson some very specific instructions. Um, and I've highlighted some bits that I think are really important. Um, so these were the instructions that Hobson was given. He was to negotiate a treaty which both sides fully understood. And with the free and intelligent consent of chiefs, he was to obtain sovereignty, but only if Māori were willing to cede it. And he was to obtain land, but on the condition that Māori retained enough for their own purposes and would not be disadvantaged. His instructions were really clear. Māori title to the soil and to the sovereignty of New Zealand is indisputable and has been solemn, solemnly recognised by the British government. It really saddens me to say, but these instructions were not followed through. In 1840, the northern Māori chiefs were invited to Waitangi to meet with um, Captain Hobson and a whole lot of others. And the purpose of this gathering was to facilitate the signing of a treaty between the British Crown and the Māori chiefs. The treaty contained three articles. Um, and as we know, the difference in translation was, was quite significant. Um, some would say that the differences in the Māori version and the English version are a misunderstanding in translation, and others would say that the Māori version was deliberately worded differently or watered down so that the Māori chiefs would actually sign it. Let's have a quick look at the differences. So, in Te Tiriti, the Māori version, um, in Article 1, it gave Queen Victoria kawanatanga, or governance over the land. While in English, it gave Queen Victoria sovereignty over the land. In Article 2, Te Tiriti guaranteed chiefs te tino rangatiratanga, or chieftainship or full authority over their lands, villages, and treasured things. And I haven't put it up there, but it also gave the Crown the right to deal with Māori in buying land. In the English version, it gave chiefs the exclusive and undisturbed possession of lands, forests, fisheries, and other property. And this is the difference with the, with the land. Um, in the English version, it gave the Crown an exclusive right to deal with Māori over buying land. Um, and in Article 3, 
both translations were the same. Um, both versions gave Māori the Queen's protection and the Brit rights of British subjects. Now, there is no way that any of the Māori chiefs who were at Waitangi that day would have signed Te Tiriti if they, had, if they knew that Te Tino Rangatiratanga and sovereignty was being given over to the British Crown. They believed that they retained the rights to manage their own affairs. To help us really understand the difference here, I want to read an extract from this book, Healing Our History. Um, and in it, it says this. The meaning of sovereignty was obviously pivotal. Under English law, the sovereignty of the British crown over its territories was exclusive and indivisible, making shared authority impossible. The British crown shared sovereignty with no one. On the other side of the coin, Māori chiefs weren't even in a position to cede sovereignty to the British crown. The very notion of sovereignty was located in a European legal and political framework, which was based on entirely different premises from a Māori worldview. While the chiefs at Waitangi may have represented their respective communities, they did not have the authority to give away what the Europeans understood as sovereignty. And one of the historians said this, no chief, however high his or her rank, could dispose of a single acre without the concurrence of the hapu. Um, it's these differences in translations and the response of our government time and time again that has caused the long-lasting effects that the signing of Tetiriti has had on Māori in our country. At the signing of the treaty, Māori were industrious, vibrant, economically viable, and the late rates of literacy actually outstripped those of Pākehā. Since this time, the Pākehā way of doing things has, has um, sorry, since this time, the Pākehā way of doing things has become what normal looks like in New Zealand. And incredibly sadly, the Māori way of doing things has been discouraged, frowned upon, and even ridiculed. Um, the inequities that have resulted from the broken promises of tetiriti are immense. Um, and if these inequalities are the world in which you have grown up in, they will be what you have lived day in and day out. And I'm really sorry that this has been your reality. On the other side of the coin, I'm also really sad to say that um, if you are not in a part of society where experiences of inequality, inequity sorry, are your reality, you might even be oblivious to it. Um, in my work setting, I've had the privilege of listening to Dr. Hannah O'Regan speak twice in the past couple of years. And she has really challenged me to think about what it feels like to be Māori in 2023. How does it feel for our Māori children to walk in the school gate? Are they asked to leave their culture, their language, their identity at the front gate? Or is all of that welcomed and embraced? How does it feel um, to be Māori and to walk around town? How does it feel to be Māori to walk in the gates of our church, to the doors of our church? 
Um, as a Pākehā, I'm never going to know what that's like, but I know that sadly there continues to be many negative stereotypes and statistics for Māori in our country. Um, these have been perpetuated by the decisions of successive governments made on, beha on behalf of Māori for Māori. Um, and Hana has challenged me to think about the fact that if we don't understand the cause, we can't change the effect. So what is the cause of these negative stereotypes and statistics for Māori? Um, I can't help but take an education stance to this answer. Um, and tonight we're just going to think about two causes that continue to have an impact on the negative stereotyping for Māori. Did you know that in 1862, the government had an incredibly low expectation of Māori? Um, at the time, a school inspector reported to the House of Representatives this, that a refined education or high mental culture would be inappropriate for Māori because they are better calculated by nature to get their living by manual rather than mental labour. This notion from the school inspector led to the Native Schools Act being passed in 1867, um, and this set up a system for schools for Māori students that was focused more on manual instruction rather than academic subjects. Now this has got nothing to do with the nature of Māori, rather that the colonisers wanted to create an underclass of workers. Um, in, 18, in the 1880s though, there was one school, uh, and it's called Te Ote College, which was a Māori boys boarding school up in the Hawke's Bay, um, that totally disagreed with this notion that Māori students should only be taught manual instruction. And they continued to teach academic subjects, including French, Latin, and the classics, and they were subjects that were compulsory to get um, into university. And Te Ote College had some pretty amazing success stories. Um, this is Sir Maui Pōmari, who became the first Māori doctor. Um, and, sorry, all of these men went to Te Ote College. Uh, this is Sir James Carroll, and he was a member of Parliament and acting Prime Minister. Here's Sir Apirana Ngāta, the first Māori to complete a degree at university. He graduated as a lawyer, but has often been described as the foremost Māori politician to have served in Parliament in the mid 20th century, um, and he's also known for his work in promoting and protecting Māori language and culture, uh, and that's why he's on um, our $50 note. Uh, and here's Sir Peter Buck, who was a Māori anthropologist, physician, and politician. So even though there were some amazing success stories in this school, the school was put under increasing pressure to stop teaching these academic subjects. And, the focus on, and, and focus instead on teaching manual subjects. The principal, um, who was a Pākehā man, John Thornton, did all he could to fight back against the native schools um, so that Māori would have the same opportunities as Pākehā, but to little avail. Um, in 1915, there was an annual report which included this statement from the inspector of native schools, that so far as the department is concerned, there is no encouragement given to Māori boys who wish to enter the learned professions. The aim is to turn, if possible, their attention to the branches of industry for which the Māori seem best suited. 
I don't know about you, but I didn't know lots of this. It's pretty um, hard-hitting to hear, eh? Um, and then what about the te reo, what about te Māori, the language that was totally stripped from a generation of people? So that same Native Schools Act that stated that Māori students shouldn't be taught academic subjects also stated that the preferred language used in the education of Māori children should be English. And this was enforced rigorously in the 1900s. So much so that people were given the cane for speaking Māori in school or in the playground. Um, in the 1930s, there was an attempt by the New Zealand Federation of Teachers to have Te Reo introduced back into the national curriculum. But again, this was blocked by the Director of Education. In his view, the natural abandonment of the native tongue involves no loss to the Māori. It would be really easy to think that these are just anecdotes from the past. However, the effects of these decisions are still widely felt by Māori today. If this is you and you feel the effects of this today, my heart really does break for you. Uh, and if this is outside of, um, of your train of thought, if this is not something you've ever thought of today, um, just imagine for a moment growing up in a country where you are told that you can't do anything you want, that the world isn't your oyster, that you can only choose from a limited number of jobs. Or imagine growing up in a country where you have been asked to leave your language, your culture, your identity at the gate, or even beaten for speaking your, na your native language. So where is God in all of this? Where's, where is he at? Uh, well, in Ephesians, Paul reminds us that through God's great love and mercy, he has, been, he has made a way for us to be united as one. So I want to read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 22 together. Um, and it's titled this, Jew and Gentile Reconciled Through Christ. And this is what it says. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ." For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and its regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility." He came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. 
And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Isn't this such a great reminder for us that God has got this ultimate plan and desire for us to be united as one? And he's made this a possibility by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. If we think right back to um, Abraham's time in Genesis chapter 12, God promises Abraham that all people on earth will be blessed through him. God planned from the beginning of time that he would rescue and bless this rebellious world through Abraham's family, Israel. And then if we jump from Abraham into the first century, where most of the early believers were Jewish, at this time for the Jews, it was scandalous to even think about associating with the Gentiles. But there's this beautiful story in Acts, where God told Peter to take the gospel to a Roman a man by the name of Cornelius. And Peter, despite his background, despite his personal feelings, obeyed God. And that day, Cornelius and those who were with him received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Peter said this, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And then we have this passage in Ephesians where we are reminded that we are all separate from Christ, Jews and Gentiles, and through Christ we have been reconciled to him and united as one. I think that the challenge here is for us to realise that God wants us to be united but not uniformed. United means that we are joined together for a common purpose or by common feelings, whereas uniformed means that we are all the same at all times. God doesn't want us to be uniformed. He's created us in his image to be special and unique, to have different giftings. But God does want us to be united as one. He wants us to bring all of who we are, our culture, our identity, our language, and he wants us to join together with others in praise of him. God certainly didn't say, go into all the nations and make everyone be like you. He said in Matthew, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And Reuben, I love that you spoke about this this morning at Morning Church. Um, We're all looking forward to this time in the future when we truly are united as one before the throne of God. I just want to read these verses in Revelation from the vision that God gave to John. And it's found in Revelation 7 verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I love that God has a place, a plan in place to bring true unity. 
and he's had it from the beginning of time. But I don't think he wants us to wait till we get to heaven. Um, How could we take a step closer to this unity that God has got in store for us? What could it look like for us in this church here in Aotearoa in 2023? I'd like to finish by raising some questions for us to think about as we move forward. And my prayer is this, that this might be the start of a new conversation in our church. For me, the overarching question is this, what might we do differently so that God can move us closer to unity? What might happen if we invited people to bring their true selves to church? Their language, their culture, and their identity. What might happen for our Māori community if we were willing to explore and embrace the Māori culture and language? Uh, And as a church, what would respecting and upholding te tiriti actually look like? Um, I realise these are some pretty big and hefty questions, and I know that I don't have all of the answers, but God has given us a head and a heart for a reason. He wants us to be united as one, Um, and let's not wait for eternity for that to happen. Um, I challenge you this Waitangi day to not let it pass as just another public holiday, but to really think about how we as Christians in 2023 can bring honour to God by honouring the treaty in this land. Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful that you have a plan for this broken and hurting world. Father, you sent your son so that we might have life. Thank you for your promise of unity that you have given us. We know that since the beginning of time, it has been your desire to see us all united as one family with you as the cornerstone. Father, it must hurt your heart to see communities around the world marginalised because of the way you created them to be. Lord, we're sorry for the part that we have had to play in this. As we live our lives in the here and now, Father, help us to be mindful of those around us. Help us to see the inequities, and Father, give us a strong desire to do something about them. We love you, and we are so grateful that you are our God. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Crossroads Church Podcast. If you'd like any more information on our church, how to give, or maybe after today's message you'd like to talk to someone, you can find out everything you need to know on our website, which is crossroads.co.nz. Make sure you click subscribe on this podcast so you don't miss out on new content. Thanks for stopping by.